A challenge of reading the Bible is we often hear it in church or read it at home without context. And as a teenager, I heard wise Christians say, quote, a text without a context is a pretext for a subtext. (laughs) A text without a context is a pretext for a subtext. Two of the texts we have just heard historically have been used as pretexts for cruelty against LGBTQ people and women. The Genesis text has been read as God in some way sorting the sexes or setting out a divine pattern for the organization of the nuclear family or as a divine endorsement and sanctioning of heterosexuality. In her book, Womanist Midrash, Dr. Will Gaffney, who will be with us before the wilderness actually on November 18th, at 4.30 in Dagwell Hall, (laughs) writes the following. After the division of this human person, the human, the human persons are called man and woman for the first time. They are brown as the earth from which they were created. This is the point in the narrative at which gender, as many understand it arguably, first occurs in scripture, end quote. Dr. Gaffney then goes on to discuss the preceding chapter of Genesis 3 and the nuances of translating biblical Hebrew into modern English. How the Hebrew word Adam, that we know as Adam, refers to all of humanity in Genesis 5, to the two earthlings, these two created persons in Genesis 3, and to the single male earthling in that same chapter. Long story short, the Hebrew here is much more expansive and imaginative than traditionally interpreted. This earth-colored Adam, this creature, this earthling, bears male and female in a single body, she says, and, quote, transcends the masculine singular to which the biblical Hebrew is limited. And as transgender, gender non-binary, gender queer, and gender non-conforming people grow in our collective cultural consciousness, we realize that modern English, modern prejudices, and modern assumptions about the gender binary are limited as well. And if the earthling, the Adam, the human being is made in God's image, then our classification of God as male, as always a he, as an older white gentleman with a white beard sitting on a white throne in heaven must be limited too. And if I were in a Baptist church, I'd say, can I get an amen? Amen. But we're not Baptists. Though some of you thought that's what I was bringing here was a little Baptist flavor. 
And then we move on to Mark's gospel. Part of the divorce text, if you will, in Mark's gospel quotes directly from this Genesis passage, we just reflected on, and fittingly enough, according to one New Testament scholar, Jesus' comments here are an indictment of Herod and the rest of the puppet-like royal family. If you'll remember, similar comments got the honey and locust-eating prophet John the Baptist beheaded just a few chapters before. In one sense, Jesus is considering relationships in which hardness of heart and the atrophying of compassion make life for all involved unsustainable. He is not, according to New Testament scholar Fame Perkins, telling a battered woman that she and her children must risk physical and psychological torment every day just to avoid divorce. And that's often, unfortunately, how this passage has been used in the past. If anything, Jesus is seeking to reorient his audience altogether toward a new story. A new story altogether. A story in which two people commingled as this Adam are constantly reminded of their pre-existing interconnectedness. He then revisits a theme we heard just a few weeks ago. God's reign belongs to children. As Richard said in his sermon on the same subject, I think two weeks ago, first century Romans and Jews did not sentimentalize children or childhood the way we do in middle-class U.S. culture. Perkins, this scholar I'm quoting, goes as far as to say, quote, today, Jesus would use comparison with a child to score the point about who belongs, Jesus would not use comparison with a child to score the point about who belongs to the kingdom of God. Disciples must be challenged to identify with a group of non-persons. That's actually what Jesus is cueing us to here. That children in that time were considered non-persons as property. In U.S. society, she goes on to say, homeless street people are often regarded as non-persons. In many parts of the world, indigenous peoples might provide a more telling example of non-persons, end quote. Jesus demonstrates in his public work of healing, in his table fellowship with outcasts, in his proclamation of God's inbreaking reign that the non-persons, the less than human, They have God's favor, not the powerful. That the ignored have God's favor, not those on center stage. That those at the edges, at the margins, have God's attention, not those of regal nature. 
the ones we forget are the inheritors of God's new creation. For Jesus, this new Adam, this new earthling, the new humanity of which we are a part by virtue of our baptismal identities is taking shape as old lines of domination yield to mutuality, gentleness, and love. Is that counterintuitive? Yes, it is. It is counterintuitive. But it is good news nonetheless.